In the last probably 15 years, a lot more are coming in drug affected and it's the ice, the methamphetamine, um, and they're crazy. This is the fifth episode in our groundbreaking podcast series, Behind the Walls. For the first time, prison staff from New South Wales, Australia, take you behind the walls to explain what really goes on in jail. My name's Michael Duffy. I was a court reporter for years, but I have learnt a whole lot more from going out there and talking to several dozen prison officers. This episode is called Staff and Inmates. Sometimes they refer to themselves by the colours of their clothing, as the blue and the green. Today you're going to learn about the sort of relationships that prison officers should have with inmates and those they shouldn't. You'll learn about the role played in prisons by ICE and serious mental illness. And you'll get a few observations on the differences between dealing with male and female inmates. Angela Feeney from Dawn de Lois describes how staff who've been in the job a long time get to know some of the inmates because they've been here a long time too, or even because they've left and come back. There are a lot of inmates in jail, pardon the pun, but it's like I grew up with them in jail. I've been in the job since I was 20. They've been coming to jail since I was 20. You know, just recidivists that just keep coming back and back and back. And I have a joke with some of them sometimes. And um, I can talk to those inmates in a way that some others can't. If someone's new in the job and they try to speak to the inmates, those inmates, the way that I can, they probably get a clip around the ear because I have that rapport with them. I often have inmates approach me and say, oh, do you remember me, miss? And I can generally remember the face, but not always the name. And they say, oh, I remember you when you were in transport. You know, you took me to Darlow every day for my trial for six months. Oh, yeah, I remember you. Paul Coyne at Cessnock has found something similar. I think people don't understand, you know, especially outside, they don't understand. We don't have relationships with inmates in the same sense that you would with people in the street. But we build a rapport and we work on respect. And if you earn their respect, sometimes you're going, they're going to get in trouble with you. But at the same time, they know that if you're a straight shooter, that they can come to you and you'll be straight with them like you are with everybody else. And when they do get in trouble, I've had a few of them say, yeah, no, that's fair enough, Mr. Coyne. You always do the right thing. If I did it wrong, I did it wrong. I'll cop that, you know. They, they will lean on you. Some guys will just say, I just want to see Mr. Coyne. Can you get Mr. Coyne to come down and talk to me? And they, they'll tell me stuff on the side, on the quiet, that they wouldn't tell anyone else. I've had that a few times. Um, and you have to be careful how you manage that information as well. Um, so you don't betray that information. But um, you do use it to your advantage sometimes, obviously, to keep the jail safe. Sometimes those relationships can stand you in good stead, Paul says. I've had one bikey in particular... Um, very high up in one of the bikey gangs, ran into him in the shops. As we went past each other, um, I was on the escalator going up, he was on the escalator coming down. He had all his muscle around him, there was like nine of them. And as he came down the escalator, he looked at me and I looked at him and he gave me just a little nod. How you doing? And I gave him a little nod. Not a word was spoken. My wife was with me at the time. As we got to the top of the escalator, we walked off. And she goes, who is that? Who is that? I said, oh, don't worry about it. It's just someone. She goes, was he from jail? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, but he's, I said, he's, he's a senior bikey. He's not going to turn around and say hello to a prison officer. But we know each other. So it's that mutual, again, 
mutual respecting. And that actually built from, believe it or not, he, I was, again, fairly new, and he was at Long Bay, and I walked in, and he walked up to me, and he goes, I've heard about you, and he put his hand out to shake my hand, and it's a not a good thing. So inmates generally don't shake officers' hands, and officers generally don't shake inmates' hands. We don't want to put them on show, um, and they have their code that they don't, but he put his hand out to shake my hand, and I don't know why, but something life experience inside me said, shake the man's hand. Don't, don't ignore that. Shake the man's hand. So I shook his hand, and he turned around. And he went, "Good handshake." He measured me in that moment, and we were good from then on. And I got assaulted when I had to have the surgery, and all. I got assaulted at Long Bay by a group of inmates near reception. And he heard it. He was in reception. He heard it. Stuck his head out, called to the officers, and said, "One of yours is getting assaulted," and came flying up and belted one of the inmates so hard I thought he'd actually killed him. I'd like, I just went, oh my God, he's dead. Cause the inmate just went down like a, a sack of potatoes. And I've just gone, oh my God, he's killed him. Cause he was a big man and he could hit hard. And then he turned to the other two and he said, don't you ever lay a hand on Mr. Corn again. And I'm like standing there, I got blood coming out of me. I'm trying to gather myself, my radio's gone scattering. Yeah, and it's that handshake, he measured me in that moment. And then he pretty much saved my life, I think. The sad fact is many inmates have traumatic childhoods and have developed addictions and serious mental health problems. Here's Angela Feeney. In the last probably 15 years, a lot more are coming in drug-affected and it's the ice, the methamphetamine... Um, and they're crazy. They are insane, these guys and girls, when they first come to jail. They they have the strength of an ox. Um, they're just, they've got no idea what they're doing, where they are, what they've done. Um, whereas back in the late 90s and early 2000s, that's when you know heroin was the drug of choice, and that would just put, put them to sleep. They'll be on the nod. Um, they're probably easier to deal with. These days, inmates are way more volatile, especially if they're drug affected. It's off the charts. It is mental health in society, as everyone knows, is um, it's everywhere. It is absolutely everywhere. In jail, oh my God, we do not have the resources to deal with it. The department's trying to catch up so that we can have the resources to deal with it. I don't think we're ever going to catch up though. And Liz Sears from Macquarie shares this memory. My experience with most inmates that have an extensive history, a criminal history, is they have been, uh, they have essentially no family upbringing, uh, no family support. Uh, Their their families, there's normally drug addiction or some sort of an an extensive domestic violence as well. Um, For one example, I know an inmate who was had fetal alcohol syndrome, which was diagnosed. Um, However, he was in jail. We had to manage this inmate. He had every learning disability you could possibly imagine. So he, obviously, with a mother who was addicted to alcohol, he was uh, unable to be supported to go to school. He wasn't going to school. His mother wasn't capable of looking after him. However, he was being looked after his grandmother, but in a very 
uh, shadowy way. There wasn't any real structure there for him. So he ended up without that knowledge of uh, obviously education, he ended up living on the streets at a very early age, 12 or 13. One of the great realities about the prison system is the vast difference between female and male inmates. Everyone you ask has a strong reaction on this subject. Rowena Mustard, formerly of Glen Innes, has her own strong views. I worked with female, um, female inmates for 26 years. Um, my passion, as I said before, was mental health. Um, and um, I thought I would probably never go and work in the male jail. And I had a lot of friends who said, you've got to go and work in the male jails because it's so much easier. Females are a lot more demanding and I'm, no, this is fine, this is fine. Um, in honesty, now, I do not want to go back and work with females again. The needs are different. Often um, I found with the females, they would not give up asking um, they would go to the next person where a lot of the chaps were, would um, a lot of the chaps would take no for an answer. Angela Feeney has worked at Silverwater Women's and lots of male prisons. Girls don't have an off button. Um, a girl might ask you a question and you'll say no and she'll go but why? But why? But why? But why? And you can explain it a hundred times and you can break it down into 99 different ways of why the reasons no, but why, but why, but why. They can't take no for an answer. Whereas a, a guy, he might ask you 10 times and you'll explain it 10 times. When you break it down for him, generally he'll go, oh, all right, miss, whatever. But they get it. They sort of get it more than the girl. Yeah. Girls are, um, you've probably heard it before, Girls are um, high need, low risk. Boys are the opposite. Boys are high risk, low need. But women are different too because, um, you know, I couldn't tell you what the actual percentage rate is. Most of them are victims of abuse, whether it's mental abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. Um, I was the case manager at Mullawa. So I used to classify all the girls and give them their security rating and develop their case plans. And... Um, 95 out of 100 that would sit in front of me had come from some background of abuse. Many of the women in prison have had traumatic backgrounds as Belinda McInnes has seen. Relationships, poor relationships, whether they be family of origin, uh, relationships that have impacted negatively on their um, personal development and growth, the way that they engage with others, and then adult relationships um, that, are, that are not healthy or conducive to living a life that keeps you out of prison. Addiction that often follows poor relationships. Most of the women who I work with have significant and complex trauma histories and, and those things resonate for them. Um, and it can be very confronting for them, parenting um, and how they relate to their own children. Belinda runs the highly regarded Mothers and Children's Program at Emu Plains. It's the only one in the world where mothers can live with their young kids in prison. Since colonial times, Corrective Services has always been managing women with children in custody, but it's taken different forms at different times, and previously it was either in um, maximum security environments, and there was a time limit on how long children could remain in the care of their mothers. 
but here it was quite visionary in 1996 for the program to be developed in such a way. We are the only jurisdiction internationally where children can remain in the care of their mothers up to school age, which is six in New South Wales. And uh, we have a very generous occasional residence program where children up to the age of 12 can uh, come and stay on weekends and during school holiday periods. We do that because it is in the best interest of children to be able to maintain their relationship with their mother. It's always, and it's also enormous benefits for the mother to be able to maintain that connection with their children. For some children, this is the only option available to them, apart from out-of-home care or foster care placements. It's a sad fact that some inmates, whether male or female, feel more comfortable in prison than on the outside. Here's Director Craig Smith. Yeah, a lot of them don't have attention um, on the outside. They're, some of these people in the scheme of things get out and go back to nothing. In, in a jail, they, they have status. If they're the toughest guy in the yard, they're the boss. But on the outside, they could be the garbo or, um, you know, or no job and got no money and, and don't hold any status. But they go into a yard and they're the boss because fighting will get them through and intimidation can sometimes be enough to just get you through. Particularly when I was at Wellington, a lot of these guys have a better life in jail than they did outside. I mean, you know, they, they go back to nothing, a lot of them, and inside they get three meals a day, they get to talk to nice people, we offer them education, um, they've got friends, they've got camaraderie, They're, you know, other inmates are camaraderie, they may not even have any of that on the outside. As sad as it sounds, a lot of the people see these as a home. Many staff are actually quite compassionate towards inmates who need and deserve that. Rowena Mustard recalls an incident. One particular incident was with a Aboriginal woman who was uh, quite depressed um, and had actually felt like self-harming. And she said to me, all I need is some gum, gum tree leaves and I'll be right. So I did a quick assessment in my head and thought, well, what can she do with gum tree leaves? So I went and got some gum tree leaves for her and, um, and it settled her right down and that was just something so basic, but that was, that, that was my management style. Um, it wasn't about um, saying you couldn't have it and, and calm down because she, was, she had no intentions of doing that. I'm firm but fear the the inmates see me as cranky cranky old woman at times but that's effective because it works when i have to get them to do something that they've got to do then they then they they often will do that um i have a i have a policy with, within myself that i will every inmate that passes will acknowledge, will acknowledge each other so especially in a minimum security they're going out to society and I say to them this is how you would be this is how you should be talking to people on the outside and it works. From the inmate's point of view finding a way to get rid of physical energy uh, presents another problem in jail. Here's inmate Danny from Macquarie. I've always blamed authority for my mistakes and why I'm here but coming here and being treated with a bit of respect and spoken to as a person has helped me want to change and better myself. And the best thing about this place is we get the gym every day. So maximum security, you might get the gym once a week or... So I think 
giving people a lot of time to exercise clears your mind and stops you from being angry. And You're listening to Behind the Walls, an exclusive look at the prison system of New South Wales, Australia. It's been recorded in the state capital of Sydney, one of the few cities in the world that was founded by prisoners and those who looked after them. That was in 1788, and since then, the state has seen many vigorous debates about matters to do with security and rehabilitation. Today, the state has some 13,000 inmates, of whom 9% are women and 25% Aboriginal. That means Aboriginal people are overrepresented almost 10 times. Those inmates are housed in 34 prisons around the state, in facilities ranging from those built in the Victorian times in the 19th century to those open just last year in a massive modernisation program. If you want to know more about the state's prisons, you can visit our museum at Cooma or purchase some inmate art from the Boomgate Gallery at Long Bay. The Boomgate's website, boomgategallery.dcj.nsw.gov.au. One of the state's most difficult prisons is the Metropolitan Special Program Centre at Long Bay which runs programs to try to improve the behaviour of serious sex and violence offenders and also looks after offenders who are likely to self-harm in its acute crisis management unit. Here's Governor Adam Schreiber. The MSPC, uh, Metropolitan Special Program Centre, has a mixed bag of lollies um, in, in one sense. It's got pretty much every different cohort of inmate within the state. We have the probably the worst uh, self-harmers, inmates that have got issues, mental issues around self and self-harm is one of their ways that they cope. Probably the, the worst violent offenders in our um, violent offender therapeutic program. We have the worst sex offenders with sex offender programs, um, which is Cubit. And um, we have inmates that are on remand. We have uh, inmates that are here for medical reasons and the like. So, that, that brings a whole range of different problems um, from a management point of view with our staff. The Acute Crisis Management Unit offers some of the worst challenges staff can experience across the prison system. In the ACMU, there's um, one example where an inmate um, uh, has opened up wounds that he's, he's actually uh, self-harmed in the, in the past and continues to open up those wounds. And um, those wounds are, are very deep and obviously need hospitalisation. They come back and uh, one of these examples is one inmate, he had a, an open wound on his, his left arm down to the bone. That uh, Those wounds were, were stapled up um, by the medical practitioners with a, uh, a bit of tape over top, like a bandage. The inmate was, was restrained in a restraining belt because he was just attempting to self-harm again and he kept opening up those wounds. And this inmate actually then uh, got his, uh, his mouth pulled off the, the tape from over those staples, pulled the, pulled the staple out with his teeth and pushed it into his eyeball. Uh, I do recall uh, in that ACMU we have eight inmates and we had six ambulances all lined up to take six inmates out all at once because these, all these inmates um, G each other up to self-harm all at the one time just to make it difficult for, for us and obviously for they're trying to get some attention, which is pretty much the, one, of, one of the reasons why they actually self-harm. Um, so um, for, for our staff to be dealing that with that day in, day out, and in some cases, four times, four self-harms on the, from the same inmate throughout that day. It's very draining. 
Obviously, the effect is um, post-traumatic st stress syndrome, and we do know that there, there are a number of staff that have been in some of these uh, um, units dealing with some of these high-needs inmates, but we do not know the extent of it. Some staff seem to th feel that I'm a prison officer, I have to deal with it, and um, that is uh, that is is something we're trying to overcome and and let staff know that this is not normal um, to be able to bottle this this up and to be dealing with this for you know 20 years in the, in the in the service dealing with these inmates um, throughout that time and not having an effect on you it must have an effect on a lot of people and we need them to to be able to talk up about it so we can assist them and of course it can be hard to talk about what you see once you leave work as nick de costa from lithgow reflects there'll be a couple of us that'll go out with people that don't work in the job and some of the things we say they're dumbfounded by it like some of the that are just normal to us and we're really blasé about it one final comment a word used by both officers and inmates is staunch Paul Coyne defines it with an example from his own experience. Resilient, loyal, hard, um, don't back down, um, take your line, right or wrong, take the line and stick with it. Um, and you have staunch inmates and then you have staunch staff as well. It's a word that floats around the prison sometimes and it may be for the simplest of acts, but it, it just means something to staff, you know. Um, one of the guys actually said to me only a little while ago, so I had a number of inmates carrying on in one of the pods and it looked like it was going to go bad. And I knew if I could just get to the key player and pull them up, um, we might take the heat out of it. So I walked, shouldn't have done it, but walked straight into the pod with the 86 of them, walked straight up to your man. I said, I'm telling you now, son, if this goes on, you'll never get another visit again. I said, I will lock you down and you will get nothing if these guys, guys, guys go off because you're starting this. And he goes, no, he got a bit stroppy. I said, I'm telling you now, I'm the master of this jail. You will get nothing. And he goes, all right, chief, give me a minute. He went and talked to the guys in the corner. It was over. And as I walked past the staff, I heard one of the other one and said, see, that's staunch. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's stupid, don't ever do it. If I ever see you doing it, you'd be in so much trouble. <laughs> it strikes me as I approach the end of this episode that a prison officer's job requires a most unusual combination of qualities, ranging from extreme courage to extreme compassion. Here's James Duckworth from Macquarie. I take a bit of pride in um, trying to um, talk to inmates and get them to change their, their views on on themselves and how they act out in the public and um, try and be law-abiding citizens. So trying to change lives that way. I've had a few minor success stories that um, you never see them again in jail, which is always a good thing. Always bump into ex-inmates out in the street and they sing out and say, how you going, chief? And uh, I'm doing good and haven't been back in, so that's always good as well. I like changing lives and helping people out, so that's just the way I was brought up and um, what I'm about. Like, if you can change one life, you can, by changing one life, you can change heaps of lives. Um, this is my personal life at home. We look after some, some disadvantaged kids, so, and that just comes from working in corrections where you want to break that cycle and 
make a change for the good. After many years in the job, Mark Kennedy offers this reflection on what it is that keeps him coming back. I really enjoy it because of the first day I started. It's still about that camaraderie. It's, uh, it's about putting, putting on a uniform and being part of something. And um, I know that we don't get it right all the time, but when we do get it right, we, um, we really do get it right. Uh, I know that there's a main, there's a big focus now about the recidivism rates and the Premier's priorities, and I think it's uh, it is achievable over time, the, those priorities. Uh, but we still need. Well, I think there needs to be a little bit of a culture shift again, and um, about just around our sort of personal responsibilities as a correctional officer. You know, we um, we need to we need to be a little bit more involved with the with the inmates uh, rather than just turning the key on them. That's the end of this episode. I'd like to thank the officers who participated and hope you've learned something about what really goes on behind the walls. My thanks to Ben Cork for production and Jody Minus for advice and support. I conclude our journey with this reflection on the role of prison officers from Rowena Mustard, who retired soon after making this observation on a career to which she dedicated her working life. Like everyone who spoke for this series, she served the people of New South Wales well. I put my uniform on every day and I'm proud to put my uniform on and to be called a guard when we actually we actually manage people. People I think often think that we're very hard, hard people who um, really don't um, care care for the for the future of the inmates, but the majority of the staff actually do want the inmates to um, achieve their goals. They want to see them through through their education. They want to see them case managed properly. They and they want them, they want them to actually go out and succeed outside of the jails. Behind the walls. It's a production of Corrective Services New South Wales in the New South Wales Department of Communities and Justice.